I've spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious fund managers around. And now I've decided to take the plunge and start my own fund. The real question is, how will I do it? With no investors and without an Ivy League degree, this podcast is going to give you the answer. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we start and build multi-million dollar investment funds. I'm Bridger Pennington, and this is Investment Fund Secrets. All right, all right. Welcome back to the Investment Fund Secret Show. Today we got with us Paul Moore. Paul, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Hey, it's great to be here. Let me go through your bio really quick. I, I would, I usually just ask, you know, tell us about yourself, but you have such an extensive thing and I, it'd be just take too long. So I'm going to go through this really quick because you have a quite an impressive career in what you've done. So originally worked at Ford Motor Company, then you co firm where you're the finalist for the Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year two straight years. And then you sold that to a pokey traded company. And then you started to do other things, right? You got onto, I, on here, it says investing in real estate, found multiple investments, and development companies appeared on HGTV and eventually completed 85 plus real estate investments and exits, including a large multifamily development. And then you're, uh, you went on to be a contributor to Fox business or regular contributor to the bigger pockets and producing live video blog content regularly. Paul, you also co-hosted a wealth building podcast called how to lose money. And uh, he's, you've been featured on having over 200 people on your show. The offer of the perfect investment, creating enduring wealth from historic shift to multifamily housing and storing up profits. Capitalize on America's obsession for by stuff and investing in self-storage. Paul is the founding and managing partner of Wellings Capital, a real estate private equity firm. And now you're getting into the, the fund world, which is, is what we talk about as well. Now, you just mentioned me as well. You're writing another book. Is that right? What's your new book? It's called Warren Buffett's Rules for Real Estate Investors, at least tentatively. Gotcha. Okay. And when do you plan to, to launch that? Yeah, probably late 2022. I got this self-storage book coming out in late 21, and then we're going to turn our attention to that. The draft's almost finished. We found that Buffett has, even though he doesn't invest in real estate directly in general, hmm. his principles are fabulous for real estate investors. And so what we started doing is we started taking those principles and converting them over to the mind, you know, to, to hit real estate investors where they are. And it's just been a lot of fun. Hmm. Jeez, that's all. Well, I'm excited to see when it comes out. Yeah, because yeah, you don't hear Warren Buffett in real estate just never, never, you don't put those two words together right. much. And it looks like you guys have, which is awesome. So Okay, tell yeah. me about your show though. I'm so curious. How to lose money? How how is that a podcast? I I see it doing very well. <laughs> how to lose money? What's what's the thesis of the show? What do you guys talk about on there? Yeah, so for years I would go to these conferences and I'd see these amazing speakers up front, and they would be telling about all their success. And I'm sure it was mm -hmm. all true and real, but it seemed incomplete to me because I would sit around at lunch or at the breakout sessions and hear these guys just so depressed, like, oh man, I'll never have those family connections. I didn't have that education. I'll never, I'll just, I might as well quit. And I'd hear people say stuff like this. And I thought, wait, you don't know the whole story of the pain and loss and failure these people had to endure on the way to where they are now. Mm -hmm. And I thought if I ever got on that stage, I would tell that story. And I got to meet a lot of those people when I did, and they had the same losses and failures and insecurities that everybody else had. So I decided to interview people about that. So we interview executives, entrepreneurs, investors, et cetera, about their pain and loss and failures on the way to the top. Hmm, gotcha. I love it. Well, and that's such a good point because 
you're true. Everybody, well, it's like the Instagram, whatever. Everyone loves to talk about how great everything is. And it's, it actually, it's a lot more, con, you, you connect a lot more with somebody when you hear about their losses and, and actually, because yeah. it's real, right? Because everyone goes through that. It's not flowers and roses for everybody. Right. So I want to ask you, Paul, I, I saw in your bio an interesting uh, topic on here that you're, and it was one of your, you know, potential things where you're on one of your episodes you guys have done, how you went from $1.5 million in the bank to negative $2.5 million in debt and then back out of it. Can you tell us that story? And, and actually, well, if, if that is, I'm talking about losses, if that's one of your biggest loss periods, and I'd love to hear yeah. more about your story and things like that. But tell us about that first. Yeah. So I was 33 years old. We sold our company for 3 million. So I had a little over one and a half million dollars in the bank. And I moved to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, tried to start an international student nonprofit organization. We built a farm here and it was just a lot of fun for a while. But then I started investing in real estate. And of course, 2006, seven, eight happened. And by the time you know we were in late 2007, exactly a decade to the month, after I had made a lot of money at a young age, I had two and a half million dollars in debt. My business partner comes to me and he said, I can't do this anymore. You can have all the assets. You can have all the debt. And so that was a great day. And uh, he and I are still friends. But uh, at any rate, I had to figure out how to do deal with this. And I wow. had this morning meditation practice. And one morning I was sitting there wondering what to do. I wasn't really scared, but... I had this thought, what would George Mueller do? Now, your audience might not have heard of George Mueller. George Mueller was a hellion in Germany in the 1800s that became a saint in England. He went there and he eventually took care of a total of 10,000 orphans over that most of that century. And he never, ever went into debt. And he never uh, asked for a dime from anyone, but he raised better part of half a billion dollars in today's dollars. And so I thought, what would he do? He would do something really radical. And so I called a couple friends together who were encouraging me to consider bankruptcy. And I said, we're going to give our way out of debt. And that went over really well. And then I told my family the same thing. I had four young kids and I wanted to, I want to leave a legacy. So I said, look, we may be in real, we're in trouble here. We're going to, let's just see, you know, what's going to happen. Let's start giving generously and really believe in the, you know, the power. Some people call it karma. Some people call it sowing and reaping and all that stuff. We just said, we're going to go ahead and do that and see what happens. And so we started January 1st, 2008. Now, Bridger, you got to remember, we didn't know we were about to hurtle down the black hole of 2008. We yeah. thought maybe the worst was over. Maybe we were coming out of this. And so we started giving to charities, nonprofits, church, things we cared about. And four weeks later, I ran into a guy at a Subway restaurant who gave me this light bulb idea that I took and ran with. And I went down to the county planning and zoning department two days later and said, look, I've got this five acre waterfront property that you've told me over and over, I can't subdivide. I think I found a loophole in your law that says I can subdivide it. And the lady stares at this plat. She looks back at me and she said, I've been doing this job for decades. No one has ever come up with such a an outrageous scheme to circumvent the law. Then she <laughs> laughed and she said, but you did and you're right. And she said, you can subdivide this property. So there was still a lot of work left to do after that. But 13 months later, we had sold those properties and we were completely debt free. Huh. Wow. And this is on, right in 2008. You yeah. get, <laughs> well, there's a lot of things I want to unpack from this. Number one, the, uh, 
like what gave you the idea to get like the you said give your way out of debt and i've heard i've actually read a there's a book called the go giver it talks about this there's a number of actually i listened to a professor from syracuse she came and spoke and she did a whole study on it was very impressive actually on the more you give the more you receive and she tried to make it as wow. scientific as possible it was really, really interesting because because most people you've heard that before and it's kind <clears> of like a religion or a theory you know you can't put yeah. it in tangible things she's like she actually went out and studied this wow. huge sample size of people and, and said whether you're rich whether you're poor if you gave money what would happen over the next three years five years ten years if you gave let's call it 10 15 percent of your income and she found that those people made way made way not just a little bit more money way more money i can't remember the exact i don't want to wow. give a false statistic on here but way more money they were happier there was just this really cool and she put it all into this this study and published this paper at syracuse university on it and everything and so ever since i heard that i just and she she kept making the point of a lot of people say oh once i'm rich then i'll give right and once i'm at the end then i'll give but in reality you've got to give if you want to play that game you got to give now if you don't give now and that's what she found if you don't give when you're poor you won't give when you're rich and right. so i want to ask you what what gave you that idea of we're going to give our way out of poor and what's your thoughts on that so I think it was George Mueller's uh, example. George Mueller, yeah. like I said, he lived this radical life of generosity. He, When he died, even though he'd raised almost half a billion dollars, he had like two books and like a, a chair to his name. I mean, the guy was incredibly generous. And he, the more he gave, the more he got back. And I really believe that that was true. And it was true. Now, I don't think you know, like God's some big vending machine in the sky. And I'm just going to be able to put in a dollar and get, you know, my Zagnut bar out automatically. But I really do believe that that principle is true. And people all around the world and all kinds of religions have found this to be true. People with no religion found it to be true. And I'm so glad to hear about that study. I can't wait to look it up. Yeah, I'll have to find the, I, she spoke at BYU to, to a group and I, I was there listening. It was awesome to hear his talk, but yeah, really impressive speech. It was cool. Well, that's an incredible story too. Out of the the 08, you know, crash as well. It's it's easy to give when the the economy's up, when yeah. everyone's happy. It's easy to give them. It's a lot harder to give when things are down and things are looking bleak. Speaking of that, I want to I want to switch topics here. You I've you know we talked earlier. You've done other um you know contributing to other podcasts or even your own podcast talking about the current state of the economy and the world economy. Um, you you know a mutual friend of ours, Jason Hartman, came on my show and uh, talked a lot about this. I want to hear your thoughts from your point of view. On, we've printed enormous amounts of money. I don't know the exact number. I've heard anywhere from 20, 40% of our money supplies yeah. been printed in the last 13, 14 months, something like that. Um, yeah. You have free money, almost zero interest rates. You've got a, a, a rent uh, eviction moratorium. You can't evict people. And... Um, you have this this migration of people moving around the country. Anyway, it's just a very interesting time. I don't. I keep looking in history to try to find other times similar to this, and there's a few similar times. But I want to hear your thoughts on macroeconomics. And again, this is not financial advice, but right. let's hear. I want to hear from the the book of Paul Moore. What do you think the next eighteen months, twenty four months looks like, and what data points are you focusing on? Yeah. So great question. Um, I would recommend that everybody go back and hear that episode that you did with Jason Hart. It was fantastic. He talked about the Cantillion effect and he talked about the fact that interest rates are the lowest they've been in 5,000 years of tracked 
interest rates from Earth history. And it's true. I looked into it myself, and it appears that we are in this really weird time. It's sort of a golden moment, I think. Now, when we think about inflation, we think about the late 70s, early 80s, gas lines, shortages, you know, people with a pension who, you know, the pension check was able to cover two months rent or mortgage, and now it could only cover two weeks because, you know, things had gone up like 4x. Um, the, the supply of money was part of the issue. There's all kinds of issues that Jason and you hit really well on that podcast. But the thing is, we now have inflation that is, by their own admission, going up a lot. And then we have more inflation that, as Jason talked about on the show, was is not being reported. So we've got this high inflation that's heating up. Jason mentioned that 30% of the money supply that's ever been printed in the U.S. has been printed in the last 13 or 14 months. Um, you've got this just math equation that says there has to be a lot of inflation. But at the same time, unlike the early 80s, we've got low interest rates. Mm -hmm. So there's an opportunity right now to lock in a low interest rate on, let's say, real estate investments, lock in that rate. The banker doesn't get to share. They don't get to inflate. But you as a landlord, as and I'm in the real estate world, of course, so I'm thinking about real estate. As a landlord, as a real estate property owner, you can inflate the rents. You can inflate your revenues. And so if you can do that over 10 or 12 years or 15 or 30 or even certain FHA loans, 35 years, imagine what inflation will do to rents and bottom line profits over the next 35 years from now to 2056 versus largest cost, typically, your mortgage payment, your debt service, constant over that whole time. It's an incredible moment. We're in this window, and Bridger, I don't know how long it'll last. They say interest rates aren't going up, but you know, I can't count on that. I don't think any <laughs> of us should, but right now we have this opportunity. Well, so your play is you know, lock in a low interest rate, buy up, scoop up assets, and hold for a long time, be able to service the debt. Is that correct? Yeah. And that's that's a new thing. I've been warning. I wrote a book on multifamily five years ago. Then I've been warning people the last three or four years not to buy it because it was overheated. But now yeah. I'm thinking it's going to it's got a long runway ahead with these revenue, you know, that can go up. So you don't see I mean, I so I live in Utah right now. I, I believe uh, it's uh, appreciation over the last 12 months is 20 percent on average residential houses. So the house yeah. I'm in, I mean, 20% in a year. It just yeah. seems, it just seems, they call it the everything bubble right now, right? Everything's right. inflated, everything's going up. Do you see a hiccup in the real estate market, um, you know, with uh, a rent moratorium ending where a lot of people are going to get foreclosed on or evicted? Do you see that, you know, a lot of supply hitting the market? Um, or do you think, you know, these prices are, are actually, they're high, but they're good. They're going to keep going up. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I really can't predict. I mean, there may be some type of hiccup, but I think that, you know, there may be a cyclical trend that has a, a downturn, but the secular trend, you know, the bigger trend line mm. is, I mean, I don't see how it can't go up with, you know, the amount of money we've printed, the, uh, you know, the, the, the rush from people in Manhattan, LA, San Francisco, Chicago, rushing to places like Utah, like where I am in Virginia. I mean, you know, I mean, people selling a $2 million condo in Manhattan can't believe the the almost mansion they can get on a waterfront, a beautiful lake here 
in Virginia. And mm-hmm. so, and then even put a lot of money in their pocket. So it's, it's a really unique time, you know, with people rushing out of cities, realizing they don't have to, you know, live and work in the same place. Also realizing life's shorter than they thought, you know, with the pandemic and everything, people are like, you know, I think I'm going to live where I want to live. I think I'm going to drive the convertible I always wanted. I think I'm going to get that four-wheeler, that RV. RV sales are up hundreds of percent from what I've heard in the last year. It's hard to get a four-wheeler. I bought a four-wheeler and can't find a utility trailer for it to, to carry it on because they're like eight months out. So you've got low supply. You've got, because of labor and the COVID thing and over the last month and everything, you got this massive demand, massive increase in steel, lumber prices, house prices, other stuff. It's just a really wild time. And it's a time that some people are going to get very wealthy if they can harness what we just talked about as far as low debt and the coming inflation. So, and I want to just, I want to just a few more gray hairs than I do. Um, yeah. not, <laughs> uh, I, and I, I've never been through a major crash. I mean, 2007, 2008, I was not really, I mean, I was in, I was in school. So I was in high school or I was right. even, no, even before that. I wasn't even, I'm in my mid twenties right now. So I haven't seen a big crash. I haven't lived through one. And, and usually that changes you as an investor. You know, you have the doc and I talked to, you know, older, my, my dad or grandpa or anybody, anybody in my family that have lived through that and it changes their mentality right? And they, and they, a lot of people are saying it feels like it fell in 2005 right now. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see a similar, you know, black swan event happening soon? Just, and that, it, and just as me from ignorance, I haven't living, I haven't lived through it. Right. Just feel, seeing like, it just seems like everything's going up and that's the moment it all drops out. Uh, yeah. Thoughts on, you know, on that, do, do you feel like it's a, a similar, a similar <clears throat> thing or, or are we in a different whole different ball game? Yeah, it's hard to tell. You know, I like to follow Howard Marks as well. And Howard Marks wrote Mastering the Market Cycle, Getting the Odds on Your Side. And in that book, he talks about, you know, that it's really impossible or almost impossible to really predict black swan events, etc. He said, all we can do is make the best decisions for where we appear to be in the cycle. And, you know, where we have appeared to be in the cycle is multifamilies overheated. There's not a lot of available in multifamily and single family homes, meaning that there's not a lot of value that can be created by acquiring it and running it well. There's other asset types like that I love, like self-storage and mobile home parks, where there is a lot of intrinsic value. We can get back to that if you want. But as far as where we are in the cycle, I want to dial in personally on doing the things that make sense regardless of what happens. Locking in low debt, getting assets with intrinsic value that creates a margin of safety. Those are two things I can do in any market. So that's where I'm focusing on regardless mm-hmm. of what's coming. Hmm, I like that a lot. So let's, well, let's touch on that for a minute. You've got, you know, a real estate fund. Uh, I believe you're launching, walk us through your guys' thesis, what you're thinking, if you, if you don't mind to share, but what, 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 what's the plan for the fund? What are you guys planning to do and, and ways like you just said to, find intrinsic value, whether it goes up or down, we're going to be just fine because we have, you know, we're following this plan. Yeah. So we're launching our fourth real estate fund uh, this summer, 2021. And um, we are, our, our, our thought is that it's been hard for people over the years. People would love to get into commercial real estate. The average investor, you know, they can see the tax benefits, the wealth creation, the income creation of commercial real estate, 
but they don't know who to trust or how to get in. So we made it accessible uh, by pulling together a fund of different asset types, different geographies, different operators, allowing people to invest one time, let's say 50 or $100,000 for accredited investors. They give it to us and we spread it over like 78 assets in our last fund that we just finished recently. And so the goal is for us is to find intrinsic value in an asset. Um, Michelangelo, the greatest sculptor ever, said he could see a piece of granite. Everybody could see it, but he could see a sculpture already in place. He just needed to chip away the superfluous material. And so I, I see that a great operator in self-storage or mobile home parks, they can see the intrinsic value and they need to chip away all the stuff that is keeping it from coming out. So self-storage mobile home parks, the reason I love these in particular is they have a lot of mom and pop owners. I mean, mobile home parks, there's about 44,000 in the US. About 85 or 90% are owned by mom and pop operators. They don't have the desire, the resources, or the knowledge to improve the income and maximize the corresponding value. Hey, they don't need to. Cap rates on these things have already gone down from 10 or 11 or 12% down to about 6%. And so they've already doubled the value just by the popularity of the asset class. They're already going to be selling for millions more than they ever planned to. But if you buy one of these assets, you can go in and do things that the mom and pop would never know or care to do to increase income to increase the value and potentially double or even triple the investor's equity in a couple of years. And so that's true for self-storage as well. Mobile home parks are the only asset type that uh, have a decreasing supply and an increasing demand every year. And so there's How's just it? a what's, lot what's to What's decreasing love. on it? Yeah, so uh, the number of mobile home parks being built in the U.S. every year is estimated to be 10 or 20 uh, in the whole U.S., and they're generally in rural areas or places you know most people wouldn't want to be anyway or most people wouldn't want to invest. But there's about 100 to 150 being destroyed or torn down or vacated every year, and there's lots of reasons for that. So there's a decreasing supply. But there is a, an affordability crisis in the U.S. You know, 10,000 people a day turn 65, but six out of those, six out of every 10 don't have $10,000 saved for retirement. But a lot of them have some home equity and they can buy a mobile home and live in a mobile home park and actually have a better life than they would have in their house. And so that's one of the reasons that mobile home parks are just, they're, they're coming into their own as a great asset type. They're probably, you know, where self-storage was 10 years ago and where apartments were 20 or 30 years ago. And so there's a lot of potential upside there. Hmm, I love it. I, yeah, I've heard a number of funds and and just people talk about, well, I've, I've never done a mobile home park or, or even self-storage, but I've heard just great things. And there's just, and especially RV parks, mobile home parks, um, you, there's just so much, so much meat on the bone. So congrats. And is, is that your thesis for the other three funds? Is this fourth fund unique just to that? No, the last three funds have had self-storage in mobile home parks. They had a potential of having apartments, but we haven't found apartments that we found anywhere near that much intrinsic value on them. I, mean, I could run you through an example or two if you want, but uh, we just see so much potential value. Self-storage, there's 53,000 self-storage facilities in the U.S., 
That's the same as Subway, McDonald's, Starbucks combined. Yet about half of those are owned by mom and pops. And again, they don't have the desire, knowledge or money to, you know, to really maximize value on these things. Makes sense. And as far as the, so now we're in, this is investment fund secrets podcast. We talk about funds and fund managers a lot. So in your fund, what's, what is your role end up being? Are you the one going out and walking properties and making deals happen? Are you the one finding investors? Are you the one helping manage the internal workings of the fund? Or anyway, I'm curious, what's your role inside of the, inside of the fund? Yeah. So Perry Marshall wrote a book called 80-20 Sales and Marketing. You know, the 80-20 principle says that 80% of the, the you know, stuff, is, 80, 80% of the rain is made by 20% of the players. Well, that's also fractal, which means that like 80% of 80%, 64% of the good stuff is done by 20% of 20% or 4% of the players. So our goal was to actually find the very best, say, 4% of the operators that are doing the very best deals in self-storage and mobile home parks. They're buying from mom and pops. They have a great acquisition pipeline. And to partner with them by investing with them. So again, studying Warren Buffett, Buffett obviously doesn't choose ice cream flavors. He doesn't write insurance policies. He doesn't build mobile homes, but he is the largest player or one of the largest players in every one of those areas and a whole lot more. He does that by partnering with great management teams who do great deals. And that's our thesis as well. Gotcha. Okay. So you'll find great operators and do that as well. And is that your job then is to go out and find those operators or you personally inside your team you know, is, is, or is your role more capital raising or just, I know you do a lot of marketing. You're on, you're on shows. And all. What is your role specifically? Yeah. My role specifically is to be the visionary. I came up with a lot of these ideas uh, to actually connect with investors, to create content. I do a lot of blogging, mm-hmm. uh, videos, webinars, et cetera. And then our team does the operations, the mechanics, and we got another guy on the team that specifically is out there sourcing operators. Though a lot of those, so you know, are sourced through me, and I just hand in the lead, and he goes out and does the a lot of the due diligence. Gotcha, makes sense. Well, really cool. Well, congrats on the fourth fund Thanks. being launched. That's that's it. That's an impressive feat to get past. Just even get one is a big feat, and then let alone have four that are running. So. Congrats to you, Paul, on that. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you, you know, I know we've got a few minutes left on here and it's been already been fun talking about talking with you. Uh, your thoughts on, and we'll go a little more broad here on someone who, you know, wanted to get in, getting into the fun space. What are some, some advice and, and not, maybe not even the fun space, but financial space and becoming mm-hmm. an investor. If someone's listening to the show, mm-hmm. you know, let's, yeah, let's step back a little bit. First time investor, they're a little bit nervous, right? Um, the first property you buy, the first investment you ever make, it's just this, that you have a little pit in your stomach, right? Of like, ah, like, should I do it? Should I, when's the perfect time? Should I get in? Should I not? What are some thoughts you have for someone who's a first time investor? We have 44 million first time investors, this 44 million new people on the, on the public markets trading, which is just insane mm-hmm. thoughts and, and, um, you know, advice you would give to, to people that are just getting in, or maybe they've just started in this investing space and, and are looking for some help. Yeah. Warren Buffett said the best investors say no a lot. The very best investors say no almost every time. 
And so and that corresponds to something that Donald Trump said way back in the 80s. I remember reading this when I was in grad school. He said, don't fall in love with any property. And so it's so easy to get emotionally entangled. It's so easy to ignore warning signs, ignore gut feel. You know, there's so many things we can do because we emotion, you know, our emotions are tied in and we want something so bad. So that's why I think it's really important to get a team, get a mentor, get a paid or unpaid coach to really guide you and listen to them. Listen to your gut. Listen to your spouse. For goodness sake, guys, our wives know a lot of things, you know, or significant others others know a lot of things that we don't know, even if they don't understand the mechanics of the business. And so that would be my main advice would be to find a coach, find a mentor, or to invest with somebody whose interests are aligned with yours, who's got skin in the game, and they're going to profit when you profit, and they've got a whole lot more experience than you. And, and like I said, don't follow your emotions. When you get so entangled that you don't want to hear something bad about some you know, operator, you hear, you hear something bad and you're ignoring it because you're rushing to invest, that's a really bad sign. <laughs> I love it. Good investors. Yeah. I'd say no, almost all that. I love that all the time. What, thoughts on finding a good mentor. What's some ways maybe, I know you've probably been contacted by a gajillion young people. Hey, mm. Paul, can you be my mentor? What are, you know, what are the ones that stick and actually like, you're like, actually, I'm, I actually do want to help that person or work with that person. Yeah. I think there's an art to finding a mentor. Yes. You can pay for coaches. People have programs and stuff like that. Uh, but to actually find a good mentor, I think is an art in itself. Any thoughts there? Yeah. Yeah, you can definitely pay a coach. And I've had three of the most successful things I've ever done in my life was when I paid an expensive coach. So don't be afraid to do that. But if you want to look for a mentor, what you're going to want to do is go, you know, buy them coffee or take them to lunch at a nice restaurant. You pay and you don't go and say, I want to learn everything I can from you. But you go say, look, I, I really respect and admire you. What can I do to serve you? What do you need done? I'm willing to, you know, help you out at, you know, and I'm not asking for any money. I would just like to learn from you, but I would like to serve you and help you. And if you actually do that and follow through, I mean, really follow through, you'll be one in a hundred that actually follow through and then you'll really impress them. And in a short time, they'll be giving you more and more responsibilities, more tasks to do, and they will feel compelled most likely to pay you or even potentially partner with you on a deal at some point. And I've seen that happen a number of times. It's been really powerful. Mm. That's spot on. So come in, how can I help? How can I serve you? And then actually doing it, right? Actually following up. Yeah. And uh, and you'll, it's this, I guess the law of reciprocity, right? When you give yeah. to somebody, they usually wanna re reciprocate that and maybe bring you on and they'll, it's a good test test period and testing out. I. I actually love that. Actually, an early mentor I worked with in real estate is that exact same way. Um, and uh, somebody told me, just go, just don't worry about getting paid. Don't worry about it. Just go and help him out. Just help yeah. in whatever you can on social media or his website or just random stuff, not even related to real estate. Just help him out. Right. And so I, I did that with one gentleman and he, uh, we were still very good friends and actually might be starting a business together here pretty soon, um, you know, years down the road. And he taught me a ton about real estate, helped me get going. We, we wholesale two properties together and kind of got my feet under me, got me okay looking at deals and how to think about them. 
it was uh, because I knew how to build websites. I built them websites and uh, built out of social media. And because he's like, I don't know this internet thing. Can you help me? And I was like, Yeah, I can figure it out. And I was on Google looking stuff up. And anyways, I love that advice, Paul. That's 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 spot on. Um, now for for people that are for season thinking about getting into the fund game, right? You you know you're on your fourth fund here. Any advice for people? Um, you know we we talk about this a lot in our show, starting funds. I I go through the mechanics of finding investors, finding deals, finding partners, putting it together, how to structure it, you know, your SEC filings, compliance that we talk about yeah. that a lot. Any thoughts from you though, on someone that's interested in starting a fund, um, done a number of deals, they want to get in, they, they feel like they have the confidence, any thoughts or advice from you on that, that aspect? Yeah. My advice would be make sure you get the right attorneys, get the right CPA, pay the money to do it right. It's so easy to jump in and, you know, we start our first fund and we had a syndication attorney, a real estate syndication, you know, somebody who, who takes money from investors and they're the operator, asset manager, sponsor, whatever you call it. And they're doing a deal and then they get a cut of the deal after the investors get paid first. Well, syndication attorneys are basing their work on the 1933 and 1934 uh, securities and exchange laws that were passed. And they know what they're doing in the 1930s acts, so to speak. But there's also the 1940s acts, you know, the different rules that were passed for securities and funds in the 1940s. The attorneys that play in that space are completely different from the attorneys that play in the 1930s space. And you, if you want to do a fund, you're going to want to be in the 1940s attorneys. They're often more expensive they're often way more knowledgeable about securities and securities law. That was the biggest lesson we learned because we wanted to go with our syndication attorney that we'd already known that, you know, that had done a number of syndications. But our CPA mm -hmm. firm said, you really need a fund law firm that is specializes in that. So that's my biggest first advice if you want to start this. And then I've got some thoughts about raising capital as well, if you want to chat about that. Yeah, let's get into raising capital. So, you know, find a good attorney. Yeah, make sure you're set up properly. You've got a good team because you're taking investor money. It's a, it's a big deal, right? Yeah. You don't want to do something wrong. Um, you want to make sure it's done right. It's done correctly. Talk us through, yeah, raising capital, especially maybe on a first or second time fund. Thoughts there on raising capital? Yeah. So, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be, this could be for a fund, an individual deal, a syndication, whatever. Uh, this, uh, this There's this great story. It's a little silly analogy, sort of. But if you live up north and you love salmon, you want to live on salmon, you can become a spear fisherman. You'll have to learn to carve you know, the limb, you'll have to learn to throw it. You'll have to hope that a, a salmon swims by in a dark stream, hope that you can spear it, hope you can get it to shore and you might have salmon for dinner. But hope is not a good business strategy, right? So another way to do it, and this is where the analogy gets really silly, you can become a grizzly bear with your jaw unhinged, standing in the waterfall, letting salmon practically leap into your mouth. And that's a strategy to get really, you know, really get a lot of great investors. Well, how do you do that? You do that by becoming a content provider, by becoming someone who creates and provides real value to people, putting it out there like you're doing on this wonderful podcast. And, you know, write a book, write ebooks, get great social media, put out great tweets, uh, have your own podcast, be a guest on podcasts. Just create educational content that helps people and then don't even ask them about money. They'll come to you and ask if they can invest with you because they already trust you. 
that's spot on. That's actually I to to echo and just back up your point. One of the best advices I ever got was start a podcast, start a show. Yeah. Um, and and don't and 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 at the, it wasn't mine was an interview show. We we inter- we interview by the way about every you know five to ten episodes. We we interview someone. We do a lot of other content there as well. And at the beginning, I, I had a mentor. We paid again. I paid him good money to be a coach and a mentor. I think it was fifteen thousand dollars. I paid this guy to help us with all online stuff and. And I would gulped. I was in, you know, kind of in debt. We put it on a credit card. I had to make the money that we had to figure this thing out. And he said, start a show. And everyone goes, yeah, I can start. But no, he goes, no, start a show and get 30 episodes under your belt as quickly as possible. Because he goes, number one, no one's going to listen to your 30 episodes anyways. It's for you. It's for you to be able to find your voice and be comfortable on camera and talking and figure out what things resonate. And then if you want to, you can go back and delete all those 30 episodes and then just start again, right? Or start a new show, but at least get to 30 episodes. And so I said, you know what? I'm gonna take him up on the heat. And he kept just hounding us. He's like, when you start your show, you're publishing it. When are you gonna publish? Go live on Instagram, start telling your story, tell people what you're doing. Get, And it was just, it, it was a big gulp to get into it for us. And finally, I just said, I'm gonna bite the bullet and get in. And we started, and um, this show by itself has bloomed into incredible relationships with investors, with, uh, we have a bunch of programs and, and now we coach people and we have a coaching program. We have over 3000 students right now in our programs. Wow. And it's just been incredible. All based really from this show is the first thing we started. It all kind of trickled from this. And I've told a number of people that, um, and especially, you know, people like Paul, just for people listening, there's no way ever return a phone call from me. Right. Except for I have a show. And so Paul, he'll come on. Right. And if you want to meet people that are above your pay grade a little bit, and, and people that run for funds and incredible people like Paul that have done, you know, been all over the place. And this is me just giving out my, <laughs> and you know, the same thing, Bo, start a show though. And people love to, to be on shows. And especially if you have a number of episodes and a decent following, like we do, it's, it's, it brings right. on incredible people like Paul. Paul, how did you start your sure. shows? How'd you get into the publishing space um, as well? I'd love to hear that story. <laughs> well, I had a mentor that I paid $25,000 to, and they were trying to coach us. They coached us on everything in the real estate realm. This was a long time ago. And I was just, I had decided, Bridger, that I was going to work with two or three big investors who were going to fund all of our deals. And our mentor kept saying, it's not going to work. You're going to need to start a show. You need to get out there. He didn't say start a show, actually. He said, go out and publish stuff, start doing speaking engagements. This was back in the day before podcasts were anywhere near as you know, popular. And I kept resisting him. And after about two deals went bad because I didn't have investors, on a phone call with other people on the call, this is my mentor here who I had a lifetime subscription to call him, right? on this conference call with my one of my young employees and my business partner, uh, he's like, listen, you don't listen to me. So don't call me back. Don't get on my schedule ever again until you do what I've been telling you to do for two years. Ouch. And that was the yeah. day I decided, man, I've got to get involved. I've got to start a show. I've got to finish my book. I've got to do this ebook, et cetera. And so all of that bloomed from that moment. And, and we went from having like five potential investors to having, you know, many, many hundreds of actual investors. Wow. That's how, how what year, how, how long ago was that? That was, I started that mentoring program in 2014. We'd already done two multifamily deals. Didn't know what we were doing. Didn't even know what a rent roll was. I thought it was just a list of people who, you know, lived in the apartments. And so uh, decided to go back and get mentored in 2014 to really learn it. So not that long ago. Yeah. 
Oh, that's, that's amazing. I, and yeah, and look at, you know, I mean, you've, you've launched a number of shows, yeah, books and shows and just, and it's been incredible to see what you've done there. So Paul, walk me through though on, on your show specifically, is that, is that for, would you recommend that to everybody? That anyone that wants to raise capital, get a show, start publishing, or is it a certain personality type or is it only for certain people that can do things? What, what's your advice? Should everyone do it or should just certain people do it? What, what are your thoughts? I got a crazy story for you. So I was actually on a mission trip to Haiti in 2013 or 14. I was riding alongside this guy that I knew. I played bass and he actually played drums and we played together a few times. And he was telling me for the first time how he had joined some really famous guru programs. I won't name them, but they're, I mean, everybody knows who these gurus are. And he said he had just spent a ton of money going to their weekend and week-long events. And it was just a waste. And he was so depressed. He was actually working a full-time job, adopting one or two orphans and training horses all evening. But he wanted to be a real estate investor. So he piddled around for years. And after that, for many more years. And he actually joined a coaching program that currently costs $50,000 just to get in. It was much less at the time. This was three years ago last month. Mm -hmm. And he joined this. And after about five months, the coach said, you've got to start a show, but not just any show. You need to start a daily show. Well, when I heard that, I thought, no way. He's got this job. He's got kids. He's doing all this stuff. And his personality is super quiet. He's very meek, mild-mannered, quiet, thoughtful. You know, he's just not kind of an out-there guy like I am. And I just thought it was going to be really hard. Well, he's never missed a, sh a day in two and a half years. Now, wow. if he needs to, like he was telling me over coffee a few weeks ago, he said, if I need to raise, like he said, I think he raised seven or eight million dollars on his latest deal. He literally put the word out, had the money raised in three hours and had double that much, much money on a waiting list within 24 hours. So basically this guy from having a show, daily show, uh, he can snap his fingers and raise as much money as he wants. I mean, it's called the real estate syndication show. Whitney Sewell, great guy. He quit his job and he's obviously, I mean, he's just doing extremely well now. He's got like five apartment deals under his belt, including I think one in Utah. Wow. <laughs> that's a, that's awesome. So that, that proves right there. I love that story too. The, uh, the, um, you don't need to have this, whatever, whatever it is, X, Y, Z personality or, or topic or whatever you can get started get into. It. I, I think that's excellent advice, Paul. Okay, we got a, we got a couple minutes left here. I want to do some quick hit questions and, and just hear your thoughts. Um, and we we mentioned this earlier. Um, for for someone you know that's that's I don't know you you've had an extensive career in entrepreneurship. Um, you've done a lot of your own businesses. Thoughts on you know people that are are struggling with being an entrepreneur. Any thoughts there on that they have the fear? They have a lot of fear to just start a business or get into this game at all, right? thoughts there to that helped you overcome the fear of of it all well i'm probably not the right person to answer this because i quit ford motor company with all the benefits and the career track and everything with my wife seven months pregnant with our first baby and actually looking back on it 97 percent of the revenue when i quit uh was from one client who was unstable mm -hmm. and they actually did stop paying us 13 months later but my point is I had a risk, a tolerance that was kind of crazy that I don't know if I would do that again now. 
uh, I think I'd have been a lot more careful. As far as your question, you know, I mean, I think everybody just is going to say the same thing. You just got to get out there and do it. But make sure your gut and your mind and everything else is aligned. If you feel a lot of fear and resistance, maybe it's a sign that you're not really supposed to do this and you're supposed to do something different. On our How to Lose Money show, we learn from people that quit you know, people who quit too soon and should have persisted, others went on way too long with the wrong mm -hmm. thing and they should have quit sooner. So that's some things we've learned. Huh. Interesting. So follow, follow the omens. So yeah. you're saying a little bit, a little, yeah. If you, if you read the alchemist, right. It talks about that thoughts yeah. on a uh, cryptocurrency. You know, I really was, I, I kind of made fun of it. In fact, in uh, December, 2017, when it was about 18 or 19,000, I wrote an article about why real estate's so much better. And three days later it crashed and eventually went down to 3000. But now I actually, that I've studied it more, I actually believe it's a good hedge against currency inflation. And I bought some myself, my business partner's buying some. And I really do believe that the right cryptocurrency, and of course, I'm thinking of Bitcoin right now and mm -hmm. uh, Ethereum, uh, I think they're actually, I don't think they're safe. I don't think they're stable. I do think they're a speculation. I don't think they're really an investment, but a speculation. At the same time, I have some, and I do recommend that people get some. Hmm. I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, and on that, I just want to follow up on, uh, you know, hedge against the US dollar. Thoughts on the future of the US dollar? Do you think, do you, when can this money printing, and this is a, probably a bigger conversation, but uh, it's a big topic. When, to what end, right? To what end can we keep doing this uh, where a country will say, I'm not going to accept this dollar anymore? Do you think we're, do we got still a lot of room there where we're pushing the limits? What are your thoughts? I don't know, man. I think that with right now with China playing the role that they are and having the power over us, over the, that, that they do, uh, I hope we're not going to end up, you know, Jason Hartman, uh, I think he was on your show. He showed you the $10 trillion bills from Zimbabwe. I got some yeah. too here. I got some from Zimbabwe here in Venezuela. And uh, I'm getting a little nervous about that. And it's, if, if, if we end up not being the world's reserve currency at some point, for some reason, I think we could be in a, a load of trouble there. Hmm, interesting. Uh, last question I want to I love asking this to every, all of our guests. Um, I'm just going to op open the mic. You got two minutes. I want you to share what you would feel like is most valuable to leave with this audience. Now you can talk religion, politics, God, uh, money, real estate, entrepreneurship, whatever. You've got two minutes. I'm not going to interrupt you. What are maybe one or two things that you would feel like are most valuable to you that have helped you the most? Just And I'm not, I'm not even going to phrase it that way. Just whatever you'd like to yeah. share. You got two minutes. To what you think would be most valuable to leave this audience with them will close up. So everyone, okay, I give you Paul Moore. Here we go. Okay. So first of all, I want to talk about investing versus speculating. I touched on this with Bitcoin a minute ago. Investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. Speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And the problem is people confuse the two. When we can, when we confuse the two, you can be like I was when I was 33 with a couple million dollars and blow it. And you can make lots of mistakes. And when I threw money down an oil well in North Dakota, you know, uh, the, expecting a hundred times as much back, I got zero back. That was a speculation. Well, you know, 
it goes along with this corollary that real estate or good investing should be boring. Warren Buffett's life's incredibly boring. If you look at his life over the last 60, 70 years, it's, he, he lives a very, very boring life. And, you know, Paul Samuelson was the first economist to win the Nobel Peace Prize from the U.S. And he said, true investing should be boring. He said, investing should be like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. And so that's my first thought. The second thought is, if the pandemic has taught us anything, it should have taught us that people matter. Our families, our friends, our relationships, our coworkers, our boss, our subordinates, they matter a lot. And the true joy in life, I mean, when I woke up as a 33-year-old with a couple million dollars in the bank in October of 1997, I wasn't any happier than I was the day before. But when I listened to my daughter pour out her heart to me about some pain she was in, and when I actually was able to help her and love her, I got a lot more joy out of that than the million dollars. And I'm telling you, like you said earlier, Bridger, if you're not doing it now, when you're struggling, when you're, let's say you're poor, or you're just getting started out, you, you need, whoever you are is who you are today. What you, whatever you're going to be in public is who you are in secret right now. So take those steps, make that time, don't live for work, and you can find a lot more joy in relationships. I think we were put on the earth to love people and to serve people, and we'll get our joy from that, even if that love is not returned. Hmm. Wow. Great advice, Paul. I love it. I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. We'll probably have to follow up with you in, a, in a, maybe six months or a year from now and see how the fun's doing and and how everything plays out. Paul, thank you again. What are what are good ways people can find you, reach out? If they want to hear more, where can they go? Where is your show at? All those types of things. How can people get in touch with you? Yeah, I spent the first 11 years in real estate investing, you know, doing flips and lots and houses and stuff and didn't know how to get into commercials. So we created a course people can get from going to wellingscapital.com slash resources. It's a free course. You can learn how to invest in commercial real estate, self-storage, mobile home parks are in there as well. So that's wellings, W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, capital.com slash resources. Gotcha. Wellingscapital.com slash resources. You got your course on there about real estate, all that kind of stuff. That's great. Um, and then your show, never. Uh, sorry, How to Lose Money, correct? Yeah, How to Lose Money is how available. How to Lose Money is the show. Okay. episodes out there on you know iTunes and anywhere you can find podcasts. We got it. Okay, I love it. Paul, thank you again so much. We'll have this, uh, let's out, have this episode out to you soon, hopefully. And, and thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks, Bridger. It's been great to be here. It's a real honor. Bridger here. I have four free and simple ways I can further help you to scale your business or fund. Number one, I have a YouTube channel with actually, I don't, to toot my own horn, I think it's decent content on there. Go check it out. Bridger Pennington is a YouTube channel. We go very deep on funds. Number two, I have a one hour free training at investmentfundsecrets.com. We go very deep into how to actually start and scale your very own fund from ground zero. Number three, you can join our free private Facebook group of like-minded people like me and you that go out and launch the scale of funds. I go live in there once a week. The name of the group is Investment Fund Secrets. 
And then number four, finally, I have a free PDF guide on how to actually launch and scale your fund. If you go to investmentfundsecrets.com slash guide, you can download that guide. Now, finally, people always ask me, Bridger, can you help me one-on-one? Can we work together? Yes, I don't wanna talk about that in here, but if you wanna learn more, message me, Bridger at investmentfundsecrets.com or just DM me on Instagram. Thank you guys, and I'll see you in the next episode.